4, verse 1, in our series on strength for today, hope for tomorrow. Uh, Summer in the sun tonight, 6.30. Uh, Ben's going to be looking at uh, the the double helping that uh, Elisha got from Elijah, and uh, and maybe you can get a double helping of uh, Sloppy Joe's uh, if you show up. And and I'm glad you can adjust to go old school. These are called bulletins, and they are quite useful uh, for... uh, for worship. So, um, <clears throat> service is not being streamed today, as you, as you know, uh, just some technical problems. It will be available later on Sermon Audio. So, uh, but this morning, Revelation chapter 4, verse 1, this is the Word of God. After this, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once, I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. And around the throne were twenty-four thrones, and seated on the thrones were twenty-four elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumbles and peals of thunder, and burning before the throne were burning seven torches of fire which are the seven spirits of God. Before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne on each side of the throne are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things. And by your will, they existed and were created. Join me. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray. Father, what an incredible passage of Scripture. Father, our words fail us to give you the glory that you alone deserve. And so we're asking this morning for your Holy Spirit's help. Uh, Those seven spirit that's before the throne of God to enlighten our hearts and minds, enable us to understand, Father, what you're saying and what this means uh, for our day-to-day lives as we walk through this world. So help us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Revelation's a book to... Prepare the church for strength for today and hope for tomorrow uh, as we engage the world, particularly uh, persecution. So now we've looked at the seven letters that Jesus sent to the seven churches. We said that was the didactic, the teaching portion of Revelation. Like Paul's letters, they teach the church and they emphasize the different threats that we have to keep before us as we go on. The need to beware of false teachers and false doctrines. The constant battle against sexual immorality, the reality of persecution, a loss of love for Jesus, 
and a lukewarmness, going through the motions, mediocre type of faith. Any and all those may prove fatal both to the church and to the individual. And yet Jesus says in each letter, there's great hope for the church, for the church to conquer. And so we have Jesus' promise that I will build my church. We have his promise to Habakkuk that the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And what Revelation does is unfold and, and pictures that triumph for us. So now we're about to have the curtain pulled back uh, to see behind the scenes, the scenes of history, the present day, and the future. But I may suggest that unlike when Toto pulled back the curtain and Dorothy and her gang were sorely disappointed by who the Oz is, uh, we're not going to be disappointed by what we see. And as Dennis Johnson reminds us, from the world's perspective, uh, there really is no reason to be disappointed when Toto pulls back that curtain. Because what we always see there is the reality of the American dream. Uh, the, the, the wizard turns out just to be a man. Uh, and uh, he gave that assignment to, to, uh, as a wizard to Dorothy's friends. And so he could say to them, now, well, well look, from your own experience, your own doing, tin man, you have, you have a heart, and scarecrow, you, you finally have a brain, and, and lion, you, you have courage. And how did you get it? You did it yourself. It's all within you. You did not need me. You did not need a Savior. And Dorothy, you just didn't realize all you had to do was click your heels and voila, you're, you're back in Kansas. You could have gone back any time you wanted to go back. Friends, the Wizard of Oz is, is the God of this age. People completely enamored with the power of humanity. Quite frankly, the world doesn't want us to pull back the curtain of revelation because they do not want to see what lies behind that curtain. The world prefers to find awe in in Top Gun pilots and in athletes and in Marvel comics or perhaps the highly touted metaverse, though seemingly ultimate escape from the world's reality is uh, each is a world of, of our own thinking, a world where we get to be creator and king and savior, totally detached from reality. For our part, the magnificent cathedrals of Europe have been replaced by uh, sanctuaries geared more for the use of technology, technological wizardry than pointing to the transcendent glory of God. I'm not saying that what room we worship in really matters because it doesn't. But I am suggesting that we've lost sight of the transcendence of God because we spend too much time gazing into the mirror and admiring what we find there to be the center of our universe. But friends, the book of Revelation is not so enamored with humanity. It's not about the glorification of human beings. It's about the glorification of God. And the opening scene for the rest of the book jolts us from any preoccupation with ourselves and our doubts and our despair and our defeats and discouragements in daily living. Going through this open door allows us to see things that encourage us, that will frighten us, that might amuse us, and sometimes confuse us. But if we hang on, the promise is we're going to be blessed 
and we'll be better prepared to walk through this world following Jesus. And so, yes, we sing, Oh, how I love Jesus, and rightly so, and we've already looked in that first letter about how essential our first love is. But again, what's missing for many today is, is the transcendency of God, the overwhelmingness of God, as it were, His splendor and His majesty and His glory that stretches our hearts and minds to grope for words that are adequate to express our praise for God in worship. Our greatest need in the 21st century church is to behold our God seated on a throne and to come together as the people of God to worship Him. And so these next two chapters in Revelation do just that. And if we read these chapters and we say, ho-hum, how about those braves? Or we read these chapters and then we say, where's Snapchat or, you know, where's Instagram? Then friends, our most desperate need is to repent of spiritual blindness and hard-heartedness. Likewise, if we read these words and do not, like Isaiah, repent of our own sinfulness and fallenness and say, woe is me, then we probably need to reread these chapters until we do. You see, we need these words in our daily walk because, as Vern Poitras tells us, when God's people are beset by temptation or persecution, a revelation of God's character and glory is the best remedy. So with that in mind, to behold our God, let's, let's go to the text. Verse 1, After this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what, you, what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. Always keep the biblical context in view here. Uh, The Old Testament is what helps us understand Revelation. And so several Old Testament passages have come to mind. Both the tabernacle and the temple uh, were meant to uh, be images, to be shadows, as some say, of God's throne room in heaven. We go to Isaiah 6, when Jesus is seated on the throne in the temple and the seraphim are visible to Isaiah. And he hears the words, holy, holy, holy. And he cries out, he's undone. Ezekiel sees the likeness of the appearance of the glory of the Lord and he falls down on his knees in worship. Daniel as well gets to see into the throne room of heaven. The Apostle John will describe what he sees with Old Testament words and ideas to proclaim New Testament truth. Like Matthew, Mark, and Luke struggle to find the vocabulary to tell what, uh, describe Jesus as Peter, James, and John saw him up on the mountain of transfiguration. So will John. Some of these symbols are just too big for words. So John says after this, he's not given a chronological sequence of events per se, just to order the vision. First he heard the letters and then he saw the picture. And he sees an open door. And he gets a divine invitation coming from an unmistakable voice that we've already heard back in chapter 1. It's the voice of Jesus himself. See, it's only Jesus that can give us access to the Father. Jesus is the one who makes the Father known to us. So we're about to see what must soon take place. 
Some of it's already happened uh, when John sees it. Some of it's happening at that moment. Some of it will happen in the future. The language must indicates the sovereign power of God to make things happen. This isn't just a hope. This is reality. And being led by the Spirit of God, John finds himself in the throne room of God. And friends, the church below, indeed, John knows is struggling. But now he sees how things really are in the throne room of heaven, in the throne room of the universe. And the throne dominates the next several chapters of Revelation. Everything happens around this throne. So John has this vision of of heaven. But friends, it's not a photograph. John will tell us in words what he sees, but it's not a photograph. So we're going to find similarities with Isaiah and Ezekiel and Daniel. Uh, All of them had a, a vision like this. Um, but there'll be some differences as well in detail. What John sees is a reality we cannot see right now with our physical eyes. And he sees symbols, and they have meanings. But again, they're not exact representations. Do not try to push every detail too far. What he does see is the place where the triune God rules the universe. Throne represents power and rule. 38 of the 53 times that the Bible uses the word throne are here in Revelation. Uh, rather in the New Testament, is here in Revelation. And the point is this. The song is right. He's got the whole world in his hands. In addition to that, he's got the church in his hands, and we can be assured of that. And we read, Who who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian, And around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. What you notice is missing is there's no description of God the Father seated on the throne. We don't get that. But this is the ultimate throne. High above any earthly throne with a ruler far greater than any earthly monarch. And John, like Ezekiel, turns to to precious jewels to try to get across the, uh, the multicolored light that surrounds the throne. And the precious jewels, stones, point back to the gemstones that the priest would wear on the ephod back in Exodus. Later, we'll see these same gemstones and jewels pop up in the foundation of the New Jerusalem when we get to chapter uh, 21. The jewels display the wealth and the glory and the beauty of God. And then there's a rainbow present. It's a constant reminder of the mercy of God, just like we see in the book of Ezekiel and in Genesis. Friends, this is the true meaning of the rainbow. It's a reminder of who God is as creator, as king, and as savior. Sadly, as Carl Truman puts it, what is intended as a sign of God's love and faithfulness and our dependence upon him has been turned into an aggressive symbol of human autonomy and secular decadence. Uh, Friends, it's just total rebellion against God. And around the throne were 24 thrones. And seated on the thrones were 24 elders, each clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. Now, the identity of these 24 elders is uh, much debated, though the meaning we can generally agree upon 
Their gold crowns indicate that in some way they help rule. They've been purified. They're wearing white. They have thrones, and so they're, they're reflecting God's glory. Now, I'm going to suggest, given how the vision develops, and you can take a wait-and-see attitude over the weeks about this, that these 24 beings are, are angelic beings. Uh, later, they will speak of the church in the third person. Uh, later, they will take prayers to God. But to be sure, the number 24 corresponds to 12 tribes in Israel with the 12 patriarchs uh, and the 12 apostles. And as such, they could be elders representing the, the church, the people of God, Old and New Testament. And with the number 24, you get the number of divisions of the priests who serve in worship. In First Chronicles 24, no less, who serve in the temple as well as the 24 uh, rotating groups of gatekeepers and the 24 Levitical worship leaders. I suggest just hold on. For now, think of these as angelic elders to be a heavenly type of the church that the church on earth is a reflection of with the 12 Old Testament patriarchs, the 12 apostles who serve God. Again, we'll talk about it more down the road. The emphasis today is on what they're doing uh, around the throne. And from the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the thrones, uh, there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. When the presence of God came down on Mount Sinai, uh, we had thunder and lightning. When God brought his law to his people that demanded the holiness of God's people to reflect his holiness to the surrounding nations. There are seven torches of fire. We've already seen these in chapter 1. They represent the Holy Spirit as in Zechariah 4. The light the Spirit gives is the light that's reflecting the presence of God. You may recall that the seven-branched lamp stands also in the tabernacle. And that was a picture of this. So what about this sea of glass like crystal? Because remember that the sea for the Hebrew mind was a, a place of chaos. It's where the sea monsters were. The Jews were not a seagoing people. But in this scene, the chaos is gone. The sea's under control like the Red Sea that was divided and controlled by God. It's now calm and smooth and it's a Glass, like glass, it's like crystal. Again, that was pictured back in Exodus. It was pictured in Ezekiel as well. Again, God's beauty, God's control over the chaos of this world that surrounds us, rest assured. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. The four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. Again, we go back to Ezekiel 1 and the living creatures there. Now there, each of the living creatures had four faces. Each one of them had the face of the, of the, uh, the lion and the ox and the human and the eagle. Um, again, that shows these are symbols, these are pictures, they're not snapshots. And so the lion is here. He represents the, the noblest creature, the ox, the strongest, the eagle, the swiftest, the humans, the wisest. Uh, with four of them together, they represent the whole world, the four whole, whole, 
four corners of the earth. They represent all of nature. And like the seraphim, which they probably are, they are in Isaiah 6. They each have six wings. And what they say is strikingly similar to what the the seraphim say in in chapter 6 of Isaiah. And day and night, they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. I think it's safe to say that the worship in heaven is obsessed with the holiness of God. Uh, They constantly celebrate the supreme and unimaginable holiness and glory of God. And so as they do that, they represent the whole creation rising in the worship of God. When they say, Lord God Almighty, they're proclaiming God's holiness and His power. You know, when it comes to human beings, if someone comes across you as holy, well, might notice they generally don't have much power. And those people that seem to have a lot of power, they typically don't have much holiness. All right? But God has both. And as such, He's worthy to be praised. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to Him who's seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before Him who's seated on the throne and worship Him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you were created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. So there's an emphasis on the eternality of God forever and ever, and the Creator God. Friends, that is a notion our world fights against with every fiber of its being. That's why we have the theory of evolution. It's solely to eliminate God as Creator of the universe. And what should be clear again as we read this is that we're created to be holy. We're made for glory. Again, Mount Sinai, the commandments came that we want to be a holy people. And we have that same emphasis whether you're reading Paul's letters or you're reading Hebrews or you're reading James or you're reading Peter's letters. At the same time as we see the demand for holiness, we do see the rainbow. And so we remember the grace and the mercy of God when we stumble and when we fall. Quite frankly, worshiping God is to be the norm for the church, for all creation. No, it's not what we're going to do for all the rest of eternity in heaven. There'll be other things as well. But we're going to worship God a lot. Psalm 115, Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name be glory. For the sake of your steadfast love, And your faithfulness. See, here's the thing. Either we worship God or we worship everything else. There's no halfway point. Hinduism, like most Eastern religions, argue that all is one. And we see that in our culture today. And we see it in the worship of nature. The view that there is a non-binary, that all is one, on some kind of sliding scale, uh, is rebellion against God. Uh, The Judeo-Christian view is binary. All is two. Either it's God, He's the holy, the other, 
or it's not. Only God is God, and only He is seated on the throne. To be holy is to be separate, it's to be other. And He's a holy God, and He's full of splendor and beauty and majesty. And we as the church, again, are tasked with, with mirroring that splendor and majesty uh, to the world around us through our holiness. And so we had this amazing glimpse of God on the throne in His throne room. And we see that He's overruling and directing all things that day, in our day and forever, uh, to look into the day when Jesus Christ is declared Lord over all creation. And so we join with those 24 elders who respond to the singing of the four living creatures with their own hymn as they cast their crowns, as they give their power to Him, the ultimate power, and they sing out, Worthy are you, O Lord our God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Friends, that's the hymn we'll sing for all eternity. So how about us? How are we to respond to what we see this morning? Now why is it Jesus shows us this picture first? Probably because in this world we're tempted to keep our eyes on the world, on ourselves, even to worship the self. And we're made for much more. We're made to worship God, and so he, he puts this in front of us. Probably it's because Satan not only tempts us to despair by focusing on our sin at times, but he does everything he can to distract us from the glory of God. And so in a world that worships the self, Jesus turns our eyes to God on the throne. In a world of mass shootings and chaos, God's not pacing back and forth, wondering, what am I going to do next? No, He is seated. He is ruling. And He's moving history towards the glorification of His Son, Jesus Christ. David Strain tells a story, it sounds a bit apocryphal, but we'll go with it, of Quentin Hogg. He was the Baron at Helsheim, Lord Chancellor of the United Kingdom back in the 1970s for you who've been watching the King's thing, the Queen's thing this weekend. Anyway, uh, there was a formal occasion one day in the Houses of Parliament, and so he was walking through the wide Gothic corridors of the House of Commons and all that fancy regalia they put on, you know, the wigs and all those things and the fancy clothes, because uh, he is the Queen's Lord Chancellor. And so coming toward him in the same corridor is a group of tourists, um, and they're being shown around the Parliament buildings, and they're... they're, they're taking in all the finery and they're hearing about the history of the building and, and then they see this imposing Lord Chancellor coming right towards them. And at the far end of the corridor, unbeknownst to the, to the tourists behind them, was a member of parliament that, the, uh, that the, the Chancellor had not seen for some time. And so he raised his hand above their heads uh, to the tourists to attract his friend's attention and he called out his name, Neil. And every one of the tourists dropped to their knees before this splendid and imposing figure. Friends, we are made with a propensity to worship. We're going to worship something. When we hear the birds sing, we're hearing a declaration of the glory of God. 
When we look at the flowers, we see the beauty of God. Tomorrow, when I hear the waves crashing on the beach, I'll be hearing the power of God. And when we gather as God's people and when we sing, we declare God's truth, when we come to God's word, we see the holiness of God. And we're compelled to fall down and worship with our heart and soul and mind and strength. God made us to worship. And when we see God and we know Him through His Son Jesus, we're drawn to worship God. Psalm 16 and 36 are strength for today and hope for tomorrow. In your presence, there's fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. They feast on the abundance of your house and you give them drink from the river of your delights. And let me just say, if you do not know that delight of knowing Jesus, it would be our delight to share with you today how you can know Him by knowing Jesus. And may we who know that delight express our deepest joy and hope and love in praising our great and holy, and gracious, and loving God. Let's pray. Father, our words are inadequate. But the picture that John paints for us this morning shows us your glory calls us to worship. Father, find us faithful. There's anybody here that doesn't yet know the joy of knowing Jesus. Lord, may today they be drawn by the splendor of your greatness and your might and the depth of your love. Christ's blood shed for us on the cross. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.